Hi! Welcome to the fifth episode of The Unhealthy Vegetarian. I'm your podcast host, Joyce Correa, and today I wanted to talk to you about the article that started this entire podcast, which is on eating and killing, multi-species entanglement and implications for ecology by Kelly Linton. And per usual, I will be linking that article down below as I have in the first episode of this podcast. Um, it was so influential in the making of this podcast. And so I will be breaking it down here for you and choosing some of my favorite quotes <laughs> and um, referencing some other articles and podcasts as well that have shaped my perspective on the loveliness of plants. Um, like I said in the first podcast, I wasn't going to make a podcast. This podcast is part of an environmental literature project, um, and it was originally supposed to be me eating vegan for a week, um, because I do eventually want to transition into veganism, but that changed when my professor had emailed me this article by Linton. Um, the first quote that I had read in this article made me rethink eating plant-based um, and that first quote is and I quote killing is essential to survival end quote and in relation to plants I didn't think of it as killing um, like I said in the first episode I had never considered the liveliness of plants until I, I had sat down and um, had chatted with my professor about it in her office hours, and um, I even just tried to discuss the the liveliness of plants with my fellow plant-based eaters, <laughs> um, and I get a couple of weird looks, and I don't know. I think I am one of the few people who are hyper aware of of the liveliness of plants I think that's what this course, this environmental literature course that I am in has, has opened my eyes to is the liveliness of everything um, which is of course an, an indigenous way of knowing and there are um, some wonderful indigenous authors that I will be discussing later on in this podcast who have introduced me to their ways of knowing and I value that so much now um again I had always considered that I was saving lives because I was eating plant-based but I think what I failed to consider is that I am in the process of eating plant-based also taking the lives of plants and if our lives are important to us as, as humans and um, if the lives of, of, of animals or I suppose the environmental literature is, is more than you that, that I've <laughs> I suppose the environmental literature term is more than human animals um, but if their lives matter to them too then the lives of, of plants must matter to them as well and that is worth considering. The next quote by Linton from her article 
that I wanted to discuss is as follows. Quote, we kill so that we may eat. Eating is a multi-species affair. The act of consumption is intimate. When we eat, we incorporate another living being's DNA into our own. When we eat, we don't just consume the plant or animal, we welcome the multitudes of, quote, others that coexist with what we are eating. And she suggests to see Donna Haraway um, and her book, When Species Meet. And although I have not um, read this book, I will definitely link it down below if, if it is available on um, university websites or, um, or a book to purchase as well. I think Donna Haraway is, is a wonderful writer and I've um, encountered a few of her um, writings on companion, anim companion animals um, and she is wonderful. <laughs> um, this quote made me think of of multi-species entanglements and um, how we as humans belong in that. Um, in uh, an interview with um, Richard Powers, who had has written *The Overstory*, um, which is a novel that I'm currently reading in my environmental literature course, um, there is no story of of the human and there is no story of, of nature, like the two aren't separate. And in the overstory, um, Powers really draws attention to, to our interconnectedness um, as humans with nature. Um, I think it's also striking that that novel is, is through the perspective of, of trees, <laughs> which I suppose is, is unimaginable because I believe it, it was a, um, it was, um, someone who had reviewed, um, the overstory, but she, I believe, was, was saying that we are only ever interested in stories about ourselves, and there is nothing more truer about the anthropocentrism of humans, <laughs> but yeah. Um, I would also like to quote, um, assemblages, I, perhaps that is the term that I am grasping for. Um, I took literary theory in my second year of, of my English degree, and I'm sure my fellow English majors will have taken a similar course, um, if, if you're unlucky. <laughs> I'm, I'm joking. It was just, it was a pain to get through, but it was so worth it, but... Um, assemblages, perhaps, how we are all um, related, interconnected, interacting with one another, perhaps is a better term, um, and how that is essential to our way of life, how that is essential to the ecosystem that we belong to. Um, the next quote that I would like to close read is, and I quote, we minimize killing plants even as their leaves shrivel or while their roots gasp for water and get only air. This is not because any one species has any more intrinsic value to our survival or to ecology than any other, but precisely 
because we imagine that some species are like us in some way. So this is one of two quotes that I will be discussing in this podcast um, that really, really struck me. Because, again, I didn't think I was killing plants by eating them. I didn't think that they were um, a form of life. Um, And I think perhaps it's because when we think of more than human animals, we think of how they're so human-like. Um, my first, um, first thing that comes to mind is, is my, um, partner's dog, Apollo, who he did talk about in, in our podcast together, and we both love him very much, and, um, I think of, um, Apollo's reactions when you give him a treat, or you praise him, or you get angry at him because he doesn't quite listen all the time um and that's very human I think that display of emotion of reaction is very human um and plants don't display those kinds of of reactions but in all of the readings that I've done about the liveliness of plants um they are human-like in some ways, and and perhaps not in the way that we expect, not in the way that we are used to, but um, my professor had sent me this article by Markle, (laughs) my professor had sent me this article by Michael Martyr called, If Peas Can Talk, Should We Eat Them? And he says, and I quote, Research at Ben-Gurion University in Israel published the results of its peer-reviewed research revealing that a pea plant subjected to drought conditions communicated its stress to other such plants with which it shared its soil. Um, End quote. And so plants have this ability to communicate, just like we do. Um, In addition to that, um, quote, curiously, having received the signal plants not directly affected by this particular environmental stress factor were better able to withstand adverse conditions when they actually occurred, end quote. And so how, how can we not think that plants are human-like in some way or, or so far away from us, um, so distanced from us when they care about one another, they protect one another in ways such as this, such as communicating that, hey, you know, I, I experienced this drought, and here's how you can avoid it, or um, endure it, and um, protect yourself and, and your neighbors. Um, that was really cool to me, and... Um, And another article that vouches for the ability for plants to communicate is Monica Galliano's um, article, Out of Sight But Not Out of Mind, Alternative Means of Communication in Plants, where um, her and her colleagues conduct this experiment 
where they have a chili plant and they have a fennel plant and they have them growing um, nearby each other but you know they're in separate pots so their roots aren't touching because um, from what I've learned with with other plants such as trees which I will later talk about in this episode um, they they use um, their root connections to communicate with one another however um, Galliano and her colleagues discover that um, they somehow use chemical signals um, I believe I do not have many notes on this so I'm going off on memory um, but again I will link this down below so you can get all the facts but they use chemical signals to communicate with one another um, and even when the fennel plant which is quite harmful actually to the chili plant um, was covered it was isolated the chili plant still still continued to sense that it was nearby and so it um, accelerated its germination um, process as, as a result of that competitive environment that that it was in and interestingly enough when that um, same chili plant was up next to its other chili plants <laughs> um, it didn't accelerate germination it, it knew that it didn't have to grow quickly to be able to, to protect itself to defend itself um, because it was growing to growing alongside uh, someone that didn't harm them so that's really interesting that chili plants have this this means of, of communicating that isn't the ways that we are so used to seeing or hearing um, and that was a wonderful article um, and there are lots of helpful visuals in that article as well that helped me um, understand more about their study which is so interesting um, and it's definitely worth the read in that same note, Galliano and her colleagues as well um, also had conducted a study about the ability of plants to remember. Um, and this article is called Experience Teaches Plants to Learn Faster and Slower in Environments Where It Matters. So this article is about the mimosa plant. Um, and it's, it's the plant where when you touch the leaves, it closes itself up as a reaction and so Galliano would um, drop this plant but of course not completely so the pot would shatter it, it would just be um, testing the, the plants reaction and whether it would close its leaves and it would learn um, not to close its leaves because it, it is a harmless stimulus um, and it did the mimosa plant had um, remembered that the drop was harmless and so after a few drops um, the mimosa plant would stop closing its leaves as a response because it recognized that this was a harmless stimulus and um, there was no need to to protect itself um, and it was interesting because she had also tested 
or, or I suppose um, had, had studied the long-term memory of the mimosa plant because sure, they, they memorized it after a few weeks of, or remembered it, I suppose, after a few weeks of, of training. Um, but even, you know, uh, I believe a month or two after, I, I could be wrong. Um, again, I will link this article down below so that you will be able to see the facts, but, um, even a long period of time after these same plants, even in a different environment, um, continued to remember that the stimulus is harmless and they reacted in the same way, um, because they remembered and they learned. And I think that, again, is so important because how can we think that plants are so unlike us when they remember like us and, and they learn like us and they communicate as I had previously said um, like we do and another thing is about how plants build communities with one another and um, although Richard Powers' novel The Overstory really really does um, do justice to the communities built by trees specifically um, there's also an episode of The Nature of Things called What Trees Talk About, hosted by the wonderful David Suzuki, where he talks about aspen trees and their root networks with one another. Um, the baby trees are actually attached to the roots of their parents, and um, they will also form root grafts with other trees where they can share food, and they can share water, and so they act as a community, um, which is so wonderful. <laughs> um, jack pine and spruce trees actually form similar underground communities as well. And this is a quote, the bonds are so strong that if a tree is cut down, its roots are kept alive by the rest of the community, end quote. And so, like I had said before, the lives of plants must matter to them as well, likewise to how our lives matter to us as well if they support each other like this, like, like we support each other and how we try to protect one another. Um, this is another quote from, from the same episode of, of the show, but, um, quote, if too many trees are logged out, the cost to the trees left standing might be far too high because there's too much biomass to support after thinning, end quote. So we, we ought to be mindful of of the resources that we use um, because although the trees have this great support system in, in the community that they belong to it isn't going to save all of them they can't save each other and, and sustain something that isn't sustainable when they also need to help themselves and um I think it's important to consider that um, we ought to be more respectful of our more than human counterparts, um, especially trees in this case. Um, another quote from Linton's article is, and I quote, distancing ourselves from suffering enables us to overlook the consequences of factory farms, or on the other extreme, and um, these are now, my, these are now my words, but this is 
the quote that really opened my eyes. But, quote, gives us the illusion that we can solve the problems of animal welfare and environmental degradation through veganism, while ignoring the importance of animals in our ecosystem and the very real impacts of vegetable and grain cultivation and ecology. End quote. And I believe Linton talks about this later in her article, but um, she had reminded me <laughs> that we unfortunately cannot save every animal. And that's the harsh truth of, of plant-based eating, of animal rights activists. Um, we try so hard to save lives, and as important and as valuable as that is, we can't save every life. Um, and on the other end of, of that um, discussion, if we all eat plant-based, hypothetically, if the entire world ate vegan, um, what would that do to our environment? What would that do um, when foods such as tofu, um, which is made from soy, and again, this is, um, actually from Linton's article, and, um, soy is actually genetically modified, um, and the pesticides used to take care of soy, um, is in the runoff of water, is that the, I'm not too sure if that's a term, but if that is the proper term, if, um, the, the run off <laughs> of, of the water, and it affects other plants, it affects animals when they consume this, and it affects bioaccumulation as a consequence, but it is important to consider that Eating plant-based isn't technically great for the environment. Another quote from Linton's article is, and I quote, In my research, I advocate for what I call a politics of mutual enhancement, the basis of which humility and acknowledgement of the right of every species to survive. A politics of mutual enhancement does not preclude killing. In fact, these processes are integral to life and ecology. What we must take seriously is the difference between eating and dying versus capitalist exploitation and waste, end quote. So I had, I had this guilt um, after reading this article and a guilt that had been sitting um, in my system while I was in this environmental literature course. And it's, if, if plants are alive, and if animals are alive, if everything that I consume is alive, then why would I take that life? But realistically, I can't starve myself. I can't. It can't be a, a transaction of, of take a life and I lose mine. I don't think that that's how this ecosystem works. Um... And so when Linton discussed her politics of mutual enhancement, it, it reminded me of, of 
my humility. Um, and that's how I continue to respect um, the more than human counterparts that I consume in my daily life. And so I believe that Linton is reminding us to be mindful of, of what we consume and how much we consume. And um, there's actually a podcast episode um, called Nature's Intelligence Interviewing the Vegetable with Robin Kimmerer and Monica Galliano. Um, and it is from the Bioneers radio series. And Kimmerer actually talks about the Honorable Harvest, which is a covenant of reciprocity between humans and the living world. Um, and she names the steps to the honorable harvest. And although there isn't necessarily steps, um, she envisions these to, to be the steps that you would take to participate in, um, this indigenous way of knowing. So Kimura says that you never take the first plant that you see so that you may never take the last. And if you take another plant, you ask permission because, and I quote, if you're going to take a life, you're going to be personally accountable for it, end quote. And if you're going to ask for permission, you're going to have to listen for the answer. And, um, uh, Kimmerer actually talks about how, um, quote, learning the names of plants and animals is a powerful act of support for them, end quote. Um, and also how, quote, when we learn their names and their gifts, it opens the door to reciprocity, end quote. So it, it becomes more than this one-sided relationship with plants. It becomes more than us consuming plants and only seeing them as food. And um, before I go back to the honorable harvest, um, one of my first encounters with the liveliness of, of, of food is a podcast um, with Rowan White. It is called Receding the Food System. Um, and I believe it was um, oh, it was the podcast is on the Emergence Magazine podcast, which I, again, will link in the episode notes. Um, and she talks about um, the syndrome of, of GMO and um, the generosity of seed um, and how we need to receive the people and how seeds are teachers. And that was my first encounter with, with the liveliness of food. And it was a good, it was a good introduction to, um, to how food, where food originates and how we can value that, that life, that gift that they have given us. Um, so back to the honorable harvest, um, if there isn't enough for the plants to share, you go home because at the end of the day, they don't belong to us. And if we take and we don't have permission, that's stealing and that is not okay. <laughs> and 
there's no circumstance that that is okay, whether that be any circumstance, really. (laughs) But, um, I think it's important to remember that this land isn't ours. We don't have any rights to take from it um, without permission. Um, Take from it in an abundance when they don't have that much to give. I don't think that that's fair. And I think we need to be mindful of of how much we consume um, as a consequence of that. The next quote I would love to discuss from Linton's article is, quote, um, a politics of mutual enhancement calls on us to dismantle species hierarchies and understand that we all have a place within Earth's ecology, end quote. I thought this was a good um, concluding line to her article, um, or at least I believe it was one of the last few lines. Um, and it was valuable to me because I started um, my environmental literature course discussing the great chain of being um, and how, although it is um, a very old (laughs) um, visual, if you've ever seen it, it's very, very Christian. And I don't quite remember what time period it was, um, it came about. But it was definitely around the time of the divine right of kings. So the monarchy was definitely in place. Um, But it's very much an anthropocentric worldview. Um, Although it is quite Christian. It starts with the heavens and the angels and God. um, Above us, humans. And then I believe it's the kings. And then um, lower classes of humans. And then animals and plants. um, Which are the lowest tier. And... it definitely (laughs) fails to consider the biocentric worldview. And I had actually written a paper about anthropocentrism and um, how we should transition into the biocentric worldview because there is no way... (laughs) that we as humans are, are separate from from nature. There's just no way. We have always coexisted um, in, in this environment and we have to be mindful of this coexistence. We, what we do our actions not only impact us, but it also impacts the other forms of life around us. Um, and it also impacts the future for all of us who live here. Um, and actually, for, for more on the term um, forms of life, I believe it, it originated from Van Doren. Um, Tom Van Doren, who wrote um, Flightways, um, and I have not read it in its entirety, but I believe that's where the term originates from, 
Um, it might have been in the introduction of the novel, and if you are like me and you're a university student and you have access to the online library, I believe um, Flightways is available in its entirety there. And that introduction, which is quite short actually, is, is worth a read if you really want to read about the difference between forms of life and life forms and these appropriate terms um, that we use um, to respect our more than human counterparts. And in this case, uh, Tom Van Doren draws attention to the life of birds and his, um, his narrative scholarship about birds. Um, he gives birds a voice that they very much need, especially the ones who are already extinct or are going extinct. Um, I think that that was really important for me to read as an animal lover, as an environmental literature student. Um, but I suppose that that is totally not what I was talking about. But, um, I think, to conclude <laughs> this podcast, I think that there is nothing more. <laughs> I think that there is nothing that we can do um, that is more realistic than all of us achieving what we can achieve. For example, eating plant-based once a week or using less plastic. I think I think doing that imperfectly is all that we need. Um, or as a start to help the earth heal from what we have done throughout the years. Um, uh, like my partner and I were talking about in our podcast with one another, you can't expect everyone to be vegan. But I think if everyone contributes in some way to, to helping the earth heal, I think that is a positive note to end on and a hopeful note to end on. Um, thank you very, very much for listening to this episode of The Unhealthy Vegetarian, and I'll hopefully see you on the next one. Take care.